Scout Books makes customizable notebooks and books in sunny Portland, Oregon, using 100% recycled papers, vegetable-based inks, and lots of love. Head over to scoutbooks.com to order your own custom design, pick up a few of our blank-covered DIY notebooks, or shop our limited-edition artist collaborations. Just for Bitch Podcast listeners, Scoutbooks is offering 15% off of any order with offer code BITCHMEDIA. Visit scoutbooks.com slash bitchmedia to learn more. Who knows? Your next big idea might just be a little book. Bitch Media is an independent, nonprofit feminist media organization. Help make propaganda possible. Join hundreds of fellow listeners and become a podcast pollinator. Pollinators receive a special mug, a subscription to Bitch Magazine in print and digital, a snazzy sticker, and Listen Bitch, a brand new monthly roundup of all our podcast shows and music reviews straight to your inbox. Learn more at bitchmedia.org slash pollinators. This is Popaganda, the feminist response to pop culture podcast. I'm Sarah Merck. Every once in a while, I get really sucked into a video game. I like the epic narrative-based games, ones where you feel like Playing them is like reading a sci-fi novel, except instead of reading it, you get to be one of the characters. This happened to me a while ago with the game Skyrim. In Skyrim, you get to design your own character and then run around this world going on quests involving like magic and dragons and killing stuff and solving mysteries. You know, nerdy stuff. It's not only fun, it's really addictive. And I hadn't gotten really seriously into a video game since high school when I discovered Final Fantasy and I've forgotten how absorbing it can be. Playing a video game is different than watching a movie or a TV show. At the end of a weekend after playing Skyrim for hours, turning off the game felt like coming up for air, like I'd been swimming in a different world. Looking around, it's like, oh yeah, I'm not a warrior mage. I'm just a normal person. If you haven't played a video game since the Tetris days, or ever, You'd be very surprised how engrossing and how captivating they are now. The medium is unique in its ability to make people feel like we're part of a story rather than just watching a story. Video games shape identity in a way that's distinct from other pop culture. Games are an interactive medium like no other. There is nothing like a game. That's Sam Riedel, a writer who often covers video games. It's a piece of interactive art on a level like nothing else in our history has ever come close to. Games are special. I, I really, really believe that. And the more we progress with them, I think the more lessons we can learn about ourselves and our identities, and the better a lot of us can become as people. Video games are also a huge industry. I think people who don't play games maybe think that they're like a weird, dorky niche that only a few people play. But that's exactly the opposite of true. Globally, video games are a $91 billion industry. 59% of Americans play video games. That's 186 million people, more Americans than have cable TV. We don't call someone a TVer or a movieer, but for some reason, playing video games still gets you pegged as a gamer. For Sam, playing video games as a teenager made her think differently about how she felt in the world. Sam is a transgender woman and looks back on making her first feminine video game avatars as a crucial experience in exploring her own gender identity. These days, Sam is a writer and editor. She wrote an excellent article for Bitch about the fragility of masculinity in gaming culture. 
The article is called No Girls Allowed and looks at the issues that led up to Gamergate in 2014. Gamergate was a harassment campaign that targeted outspoken feminist game developers and critics, including Zoe Quinn, Brianna Wu, and Anita Sarkeesian. When Gamergate reached its fever pitch three years ago, mobs of mostly men harassed them constantly, filling the Twitter and email inboxes of progressive video game fans, creators, and critics with virulent hate mail. The harassment spread into threats of rape and murder. Here's how Sam begins her article, No Girls Allowed. Most gamers knew the truth. There was a cancer at the center of our culture, a malignant growth of bitterness without direction and pain without cause. Many tried to mask or downplay its presence, even deny it outright, but the truth remained. Since the advent of gaming as we know it today, console video games, tabletop board and role-playing games, virtual reality, and so on, the surrounding subculture had been dominated by men who became its jealous gatekeepers, first to guard against childhood tormentors, bullies and the like, and over time simply to keep out those who were different. Most threatening of all were women, whose presence grew over time into a monolith of judgment and derision. They had no place in, quote, gamer culture, until they did. Such was the scene in August 2014, when the cancer, eventually bearing the name Gamergate, finally metastasized. As the infamous movement's three-year anniversary approaches, it's time for gamers to ask, is this still who we are? So, Gamergate. I wish we didn't have to talk about it. I wish it didn't exist. And yet, it's a sad reality. So, we've got to discuss it. Yeah, you really have to talk about Gamergate. And it's not just because you know, it's, it's an important part of gaming history now. Um, the, the power structures that became really apparent in Gamergate also ended up fueling uh, the alt-right rise to power, sort of, so to speak, and uh, Donald Trump's election. You know, a lot of the same actors like uh, Milo Yiannopoulos and those people were active very, very vocally in Gamergate and then used those same uh, places online and those, those same communities to galvanize support for uh, Trump and the, and the Trump messaging. Uh, whether ironically or seriously, in, in the in the twenty sixteen election. So, if you want to talk about like socio political issues in America from twenty fourteen to twenty sixteen, and you're not talking about Gamergate, you're doing it wrong. So, what's what's the connection between the alt right and like neo Nazi movements and people involved in Gamergate? So it's this uh, sense. That I like to think of it as though Gamergate is sort of like a staging ground for a lot of the operations that we saw uh, online in the 2016 election. You know, you have all of these like very dedicated uh, keyboard warriors uh, going out there and uh, finding the people that are vulnerable to and quote unquote deserving of harassment, um, you know, sending dozens and dozens and dozens of faceless accounts to just bombard that person with with hate and vitriol um and uh and attacks that are specifically calculated to like uh make this person so uncomfortable and so upset that they're just going to maybe like leave twitter or like leave the internet uh for 
a week, a month, whatever, um, you know, make people feel afraid, you know, make people feel as though, you know, there's this overwhelming, like, we don't know how many people there are out there, you know, we're, we're not safe, like, they're, they're, they're coming. Um, those are the sorts of uh, harassment operations that we saw uh, happen online in the 2016 election. Well, so let's let's back up for some history. And I want to talk about the history of both sexism in video games and in the communities around video games. So can you talk a little bit about video games coming on the scene in the late 1980s and like whether sexism was apparent then or whether the dynamic is new and totally different today with the advent of the Internet? Yeah, it's definitely nothing new. Um, this has been something that video games as an art form have really struggled with since the early 80s when um, we were just getting these first innovations in arcade games. All the way back in uh, 1982, actually, uh, a sociologist named Sidney... Let's get another take. Um, in All the way back in 1982, uh, a sociologist named Sidney Kaplan... Uh, wrote a study uh, called The Image of Amusement Arcades and Differences in Male and Female Video Game Playing. Um, and he basically found that people that go to arcades and play video games there uh, were like, eight out of ten of them were men. Um, so the first places that you could go to play these new things called video games, really... Um, if you weren't, like, part of the elite and had a computer. Uh, <laughs> uh, the first places that you could play video games were overwhelmingly male-dominated, and they just weren't inviting to women. And this continued uh, throughout the 80s um, until you start to see the first home entertainment systems. Um, Nintendo also puts out their first handheld gaming system in 1989, and it's called the Game Boy. Um, and I, I really like to look back at, at that naming as just so indicative of the, the baseness of the problem. Um, you know, there would not, in 1989, there would not have been a single person in the room that thought of calling anything a game girl. Like, that would not have been a thing. Um, but as these, as the uh, home entertainment systems, as, as home gaming systems become more and more prevalent, we see games that start to feature more female characters that aren't named Ms. Pac-Man. Um, <laughs> and, we, and we start to, and like, more power to uh, Toru Iwatani, who, who created Pac-Man and like made a, a targeted effort to, try and get women into games but um, for a long time a little yellow circle was all that we had <laughs> um, but in the 90s you know we uh, with uh, games like Metroid and Tomb Raider you know we start to we start to see things shifting but it's a long road so what's what's Metroid let's talk about Metroid first let's please let's talk about Metroid um, Metroid is a, a platformer game you know, if you've ever played Mario, uh, that's the sort of game you, you jump around uh, on different leveled platforms, uh, try to avoid or kill enemies. 
uh, get some loot, uh, get as many points as you can, and complete your objective. Um, Metroid is significant, uh, not f necessarily for its plotline, which is just, you know, you're a bounty hunter, you're going around in space, you're fighting uh, brain-sucking brain monsters. Yes, the monsters are brains that also want to suck your brains. <laughs> uh, but it's it's significant because of the the twist ending at the end of the first Metroid game. Uh, you, the player, you know, beat Mother Brain, and uh, you know you're you're celebrating. I just beat it. Fantastic, awesome. And then your hero Samus Aran takes off uh, her armor and reveals that she's been a woman the whole time. Uh, so without, you know, saying anything about it, uh, it, anywhere in the game, up until its closing moments, you know, uh, gamers find out, oh, I've been playing as a girl this whole time. Which is a monumental feat, really, in terms of, like, interactive storytelling. So, but at at the same time as you have this, like, oh, th this this is huge, um, this ending. There's also if you manage to score enough points and just do so well uh, in in the game past a certain benchmark, uh, Samus will actually not just strip off her armor, but strip off her clothes as well, and she's wearing either her underwear or a bikini or something um, underneath it all. Yeah, on the one hand, you get to play as this awesome character who's a woman. On the other hand, you're rewarded with her wearing an 8-bit bikini. And there's like no thought given to, isn't this undermining her character and also making huge, assu huge assumptions about who's playing this game, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. And, I, and, it's, and it doesn't make it better that at the time you know, those assumptions were, like, largely correct. I think the video game that most people would know from this era is probably Tomb Raider, starring Lara Croft, who's a really similar dynamic. She's she's this um, complex, tough, smart character who gets to do all kinds of exciting things. But on the flip side, the game lingers on shots of her disproportionately giant boobs. <laughs> right. And, the, the, God, that story about why her boobs are so big is so funny to me um, because it's really uh, Toby Gard, uh, one of her creators, uh, while they were making the, the character models for uh, Lara Croft, sort of accidentally increased her bust uh, by like 150%. <laughs> and just kind of like uh, it, it thought it was a funny mistake. And then the rest of the development team seriously bought into it and said, oh, that's a good idea. Let's do that. History doesn't interest me. Well, then why don't you stay here and consider the future? Make sure I'm not in it, however. You won't enjoy seeing me again. The, uh, the marketing for those games is so dramatically sexualized and plays up, you know, uh, yeah, you're, you're playing as a woman, but it's okay because she's hot and look at her butt. Yeah. I I want to change gears a little bit and ask about your history playing video games. Um, 
do you remember the first time you made a character in a video game and what was that process like for you from an identity standpoint? Yeah, in particular, I was really drawn to role playing games and games where you could, to some extent, customize your character. And I think the first one that I had was um, the second Baldur's Gate game, uh, Shadows of Am. And at that time, I was still very young, and I hadn't figured out that I was trans yet by a long shot. Um, but there was something about, you know, creating uh, this character who hap- who was a boy um, and, you know, customizing everything um, that really spoke to me and uh, gave me a sense of freedom that I knew I really wanted uh, and, and was excited to explore in, in Baldur's Gate and in subsequent games. Um, I, rem- I think I remember the first uh, serious female character that I rolled up was in uh, Knights of the Old Republic, which is a, a Star Wars uh, video game. And I... I made myself a a, a real mean looking uh, Sith girl <laughs> that that uh, ran around uh, all the planets and killed everything and made very good friends with a homicidal droid uh, and you know just like gave no shits. <laughs> I feel like that's, um, I feel like that's that's the real you is like a mean looking Sith girl. <laughs> you know yeah just screaming <laughs> screaming to get out. Uh, just where is my lightsaber? What have you done with it? Um, um, yeah there's and so like really through games I um, games were a big way for me to seek out sort of like um, embodiment in the way that part of me knew that I needed, but my conscious brain just wasn't capable of coming up with that on its own. Obviously, games are very special to many, many people. Like, how do you feel like playing video games has shaped your identity? Why is this something that's close to your heart? Um, well, you know, when I was coming out um, as trans, uh, back in 2015, I would often kind of like take a load off and play a game called uh, Saints Row 4. And it's this ridiculous, over the top, hyperbole upon hyperbole, first person, or not first person, uh, third person shooter, um, because uh, Saints Row has such an elaborate system of character customization you know i was able to create a character who was a woman but a woman that i could be and it sort of gave me almost an aspirational model to for for existence as a, as a woman and if not an aspirational model then at least one that i could wrap myself into and have this sort of power fantasy that didn't rely on me being a man or being perceived as a man. You know, being very obviously a woman and also toting around a, a pair of submachine guns with pink and purple polka dots on them. Um, I 
really, you know, the early stages of coming out were really difficult for me. And having that avatar to retreat into and to draw strength from in some ways was really important for me and not an insignificant uh, factor in gaining a certain amount of empowerment for myself that I, that I didn't know if I could grab. That was Sam Riedel. You can read her article, No Girls Allowed, at bitchmedia.org. Coming up, war games and what the hell the U.S. military has to do with video games. Scoutbooks makes customizable notebooks and books in sunny Portland, Oregon, using 100% recycled papers, vegetable-based inks, and lots of love. Head over to scoutbooks.com to order your own custom design, pick up a few of our blank-covered DIY notebooks, or shop our limited-edition artist collaborations. Just for Bitch Podcast listeners, Scoutbooks is offering 15% off of any order with offer code BITCHMEDIA. Visit scoutbooks.com slash bitchmedia to learn more. Who knows? Your next big idea might just be a little book. Bitch Media is an independent, nonprofit feminist media organization. Help make propaganda possible. Join hundreds of fellow listeners and become a podcast pollinator. Pollinators receive a special mug, a subscription to Bitch Magazine in print and digital, a snazzy sticker, and Listen Bitch, a brand new monthly roundup of all our podcast shows and music reviews straight to your inbox. Learn more at bitchmedia.org slash pollinators. We are all that separates the world from darkness. The enemy is ruthless. We cannot. We must not fail. Duty first. There is! Won't be enough for you! What you're hearing right now is not audio from a new movie directed by Steven Spielberg or starring Tom Hanks, but it's a trailer for a video game, the newest iteration of Call of Duty, a massively popular first-person shooter video game. The series has sold 250 million copies and made $15 billion, which, to put that in a pop culture perspective that I can wrap my brain around, is just over 22 times as much money as the movie Titanic made around the world. Call of Duty is a first-person shooter. That's a game where the perspective you see as the player is as if you're looking through the eyes of the main character. And you have a gun, and you shoot lots of stuff. Call of Duty thrives on realism, and it's all about war. In the various iterations of the game, you play as a soldier, usually an American soldier, and you fight in battles, both real ones, mostly in World War II, and fictional ones, set in the Middle East and Russia. Although some stuff about the game is obviously fictionalized, like sometimes you fight zombies. The details of the game and the guns and the uniforms and the equipment is meant to recreate the real look and feel of what it's like to be a soldier. The way these conflicts in the military are depicted impacts how people playing the games see the world too, says scholar Saweed Alzaid. For me, it's interesting because it is a fictionalized representation of a true phenomenon. 
and mostly from a perspective of, you know, Western uh, gamer culture. I talked to Al Zaid in Berlin after I saw him give a talk about the representation of Arab identity in first-person shooter games, and I wanted to know more, a lot more. Um, let's see. Can you just start off by saying your name and saying your job? Like, who are you? Sure. Um, I'm Saud Al Zaid. Uh, I am a writer, uh, speaker, and researcher based in Berlin. I just finished my doctorate uh, last year, so I'm in that transitional uh, phase. And yeah, I'm a stay-at-home dad. That's my primary job at the moment. So he was working on a dissertation about a rather different topic when he wound up looking at violence, identity, and video games. I study uh, radical Islamic thought in the Arabian Peninsula. I do kind of the intellectual background uh, to the Osama bin Ladens and uh, Ahmed al-Zawahiri's. So he is from Kuwait originally and got interested in video games because, well, he likes playing video games. In high school, he got really into playing a first-person shooter games like Quake, back when technology was still pretty clunky. Uh, Wolfenstein was the first one I played, uh, and then the Doom series, but it was like, you know, our computers back then were underpowered to even play those games. And in college, when we had faster internet connections in the kind of Quake generation, uh, it was interesting uh, kind of outlet for uh, violent feelings, as it were. <laughs> and since you were killing, uh, you know, either people in your dorm or strangers on the internet, uh, it seemed like an interesting outlet. Uh, then it became uh, a little closer to home because in a way that it was representing effectively someone who could beat me in a way that um, when you were representing like aliens or other life forms, it wasn't that obvious. When did you, when you were playing these games, was there a moment when you were like, huh, there's something interesting going on here. I'm not just shooting aliens. I'm not just, this isn't like just an escapist thing. This is shaping the way that I'm seeing the world or potentially shaping the way that the millions of people who are playing mm -hmm. the game are, are seeing themselves and seeing the world. So um, after college, uh, I would say, well, 9-11 happened two years before I graduated from university. And in the, so in the 2005, I would say, 2006, something like that, uh, was when Modern Warfare came out. By Modern Warfare, he's referring to Call of Duty Modern Warfare, the fourth game in the Call of Duty series. It's set in Afghanistan, Azerbaijan, and around fictionalized parts of the Middle East. These days, by the way, we're on Call of Duty number 14? Anyway, that's what modern warfare is. And it was really a representation of the Iraq, the American invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, and it, it couldn't be more kind of obvious, you know, of, of the, um, the storyline and, and the representation of reality that they were taking. It, at first, it wasn't necessarily uncomfortable. I wasn't, you know, I'm not like a pro-jihadi or anything. It was, this was something I was studying. Um, and I was definitely, in a sense, anti-terrorism. Uh, but the way that the game was doing it was doing it in the same way as all uh, contemporary media was at the time. Like, this is the era of, like, Jack Bauer and the show 24. And these kind of, like, hokey representations of, like, the suicide Arab deranged male. Uh, and actually getting to play the video game introduced you to kind of like the, the technical aspects of conflict. You played the side of the U.S. Marine Corps and you got to see the equipment that they used and you know when you go up a level you get to use more advanced um, uh, ammunition and, and guns and so forth. Uh, and the online multiplayer world in and of itself was a cultural domain where you saw uh, uh, sociological and cultural representations of the conflict. How people would like 
make fun of each other and you know egg each other on. Uh, uh, identity became part of the game, not just because of the way it was set up, but also because of who was playing. Mm -hmm. How much detail are talking here? Like when you play as a member of the U.S. Marine Corps, mm -hmm. do you get like the same like a real gun that the Marines actually use? Does your uniform look like the Marines? Entirely. The the attention to detail in the Call of Duty series is immaculate. They even um, do testing and audio samples from the real guns and try to simulate how it shakes in the in the uh, controller and so forth and tries to emulate the characteristics of a vari of the various weapons. And on the um, radical Islamist side, you have AK-47s, you have like these kind of post-Soviet uh, antiquated machines, and on the American side, you have the most cutting-edge uh, Western European and American firearms. While doing research for his dissertation in Saudi Arabia, Saweed came across an interesting scene involving Call of Duty. During my fieldwork, I was uh, uh, researching uh, pockets of, of uh, uh, Muslims who uh, are radicalized heavily against the West. And um, what's interesting, of course, is that they're not completely disconnected from Western society. They're not living in the desert or so forth. They're very much connected to their cell phones and they're watching TV, a lot of, you know, kind of soccer. Um, but the, the big one, the one that uh, caught my eye was, of course, that the kids were playing video games, even though this is kind of a tough uh, uh, point from an ideological perspective because of representation of the figure and so forth. Uh, and what really, really caught my attention was that uh, uh, some of them were using hacked versions of the video game where they actually adjusted the storyline. I really regretted not like taking a five minutes to be like, hey, can I have a copy of that? Or, you know, sort of figure out where they bought the game from. Uh, and I uh, tracked down actually the, the name of the game. It's uh, the Call to Jihad. It's actually the variation, Dawel al-Jihad. And it was actually a uh, Syrian hack of the game. Uh, and really, it's, it's you know, it, the, the level of expertise to actually hack the game is really high. And you need a hacked console to play the pirated versions of games. Uh, and the, the, re the only reason I can think of, um, it's, it's like fan fiction in a way, but instead they just wanted to remove the kind of American heavy ideology and insert their own version of, of the story. Uh, and uh, it, the pieces of the game were already there, they just kind of changed the script. I asked Saweed how these video games based on the American military that have sold a quarter billion copies around the world impact how people see the U.S. military and war itself. My general outlook uh, about the issue is that the, conf the conflict that we have since September 11, 2001 uh, didn't come out of a vacuum. That there was already a cultural repertoire of like stereotypes and expectations uh, that not only played themselves out but mutated. Uh, some gr cultural forms, uh, like movies, had long established. You know, the the imagine like the terrorists in Back to the Future, the Algerians or whatever. Uh, um, uh, you had these instances. Jack Bauer in '24 was actually airing when 9-11 happened. Uh, it's how it progressed over the next decade and in new technological forms, and how this attracted very particular demographics in particular. Like it's, for me, I, I am always shocked when I meet a young male who's younger than me who hasn't played a first-person shooter, at least briefly, or is completely unaware. 
and the realism is part of the attraction that you're actually using M16s, you're using real weapons that you would use in the military. And this was ex ex specifically the kind of demographic that would join the U.S. Marine Corps, the Army, the Air Force, or whatever. And to be able to like be introduced to, for instance, UAVs, um, uh, 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 un unarmed uh, 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 vehicles like drones, that you actually could play them in video games when they're actually hitting the news, almost, uh, almost uh, um, synchronized time uh, at the same time. Uh, and this, in a way, I think, drives the conflict in the future because uh, these stereotypes become harder to erode. They become calcified in our imagination. And whenever you see someone who looks like the enemy character in the video game, when you see them in real life, you immediately assume that they are the enemy. Yeah, so what when you're playing Call of Duty, when you've seen all these people playing Call of Duty Modern Warfare, which is set in Iraq and Afghanistan and in um, kind of made-up Middle Eastern towns, what sort of messages or representation do you think it's sending? Mm, I think p parts of the details that um, I would catch on uh, is class, for instance. So in certain conflicts, when you're in a war-torn village in Afghanistan, uh, I'd see poor people, uh, not just like the enemy. And w when I see them fighting, I always have this like cringe of like, are they doing this to survive? You know, is this kind of a bare bones uh, type conflict? The the realism question now is that they're making their own realism, and it's kind of this technocratic, uh, neoliberal. Uh, and, and fr quite frankly, racist worldview. What's racist about the games? I think the idea that um, the antagonists, not so much the protagonists, are very one-dimensional. Uh, they're revenge-seeking. They're uh, macho Arab males who are uh, uh, power-hungry dictators and and so forth. They don't show, in a sense, the level of sophistication, for instance, that they would show of a, uh, a Navy SEAL who has a family back home and a backstory and all this stuff. He's just like the evil thug. And partially maybe that's because of the game design, uh, uh, but I think it's also because of the inherent worldviews of the people who are making these games. So there are two different kinds of ways to play these games. You can play the narrative version, that's like playing through a movie, it's plot-driven, that's what I like to play. Or you can play a multiplayer version, where you play with other people around the world online. And it's usually more like a battle or a competition between individuals or teams. In the multiplayer version, the game is really a platform for communication. Players talk to each other through their computer mics, replete with lots of trash-talking and also harassment. I asked Sawad how being able to anonymously talk to people they are either playing against or trying to kill pans out. When, when people talk about like um, evil Twitter or <laughs> like sort of uh, the anonymity of social networking is giving them a mask, they're only seeing like s single digits of what it's like in the gamer world, uh, where trash talking is almost an art form. People are really mean to each other in these video games as well. And there's this kind of understanding that uh, because you're so anonymous, you can pick whatever username. It's actually kind of hard to... to um, uh, create an identity in online games. You're more anonymous, I, I'd say, than social networking in general. Um, and you, you see, and it's it, it's depicting violence, and people are taking um, uh, uh, this is their relaxed time, and they're taking out their aggression verbally and uh, virtually. 
on these games, and you definitely see um, more wild and extravagant behavior. And it's really interesting uh, um, that there, the girl gamers uh, um, suffer more than normal. When you hear a woman's voice, you have all these like horny teenagers who are kind of hitting on her slash also uh, uh, abusing her. And so these people are playing out real-life conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and the U.S. military. How does that come out in trash talking? Do people talk? Do people like talk about the war? Do they talk about their ideas about the Middle East? You you can represent your nationality. You can have the, these within your avatar uh, a flag sometimes, or uh, you have a couple of letters where you can represent. You know, KUW would be Kuwait, USA, of course. Um, and you do see that patriotic expression. The Multiplayer game, uh, 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 the backdrop, as it were, uh, is almost like generic. It could be Paris, it could be Baghdad. It almost doesn't matter, but the look and feel changes. Uh, so whenever I play, uh, and it's the streets of Paris, I feel like, oh, look at these cute shops and cafes. You know, ooh, you know, maybe uh, uh, you feel a little more cautious. But when you go to the Iraq level, and there's a helicopter that's destroyed in the middle of the courtyard of a mosque you're like oh screw this place you know like just blow them all it does actually color your psychological valence on the game you're playing uh, there's even levels that uh, uh, do downtown Manhattan and for me this is sometimes creepy because I walk down these streets and I'm like oh wait I know this from the game I know a good hiding spot you know blah blah but it exists in reality you know what I'm saying that the, uh, these representations are a little um, in German, you'd say unheimlich, or it's like spooky. I was curious about, you've watched people in the Middle East play these games. Do you feel like they have that feeling when they're playing Call of Duty and they're seeing somewhere that looks like the Middle East? Like, have you watched Iraqis or Afghanis or um, other people whose homes are represented in these games play them? Yeah, I played um, with Iraqis and Kuwaitis and others uh, um, online as well and talked to them uh, about the game. And for us, it's like there's kind of a mixed feeling, uh, a kind of a strong ambivalence between knowing that the resources to produce these games are on one side, so to speak, uh, so they get the tools to depict the conflict in any way they see fit. This isn't just video game developers writing games themselves. There's actually a history of the U.S. military working hand-in-hand with the video game industry, both for training and recruitment. The U.S. military, throughout its modern history, has had um, access to uh, uh, the most cutting-edge technologies and were, I think, always had their ear open to utilizing them uh, functionally. And and, uh, the first, or one of the earliest representations of the first-person shooter was a space flight simulator called Spasim, uh, uh, which was actually kind of like uh, a simulation of Star Trek, so a 3D representation of, of um, space. And almost immediately when they developed that technology in the University of Illinois in the early 70s, the U.S. military took that technology and developed a um, fighter jet simulator almost a year or so later. Uh, and in the early 80s, they hired Atari to make a uh, Bradley tank simulator, so to drive tanks. Uh, And in the late 90s, uh, they um, modded a version of Doom that the US Marine Corps used to um, uh, practice strategies of a um, small marine company. 
Uh, so it's always actually been an integral component, and uh, um, they, I think they recognize that it's also a recruitment tool, which is probably why they assist um, these game developers to, to you know, the, you, you see on YouTube, for instance, the game developers going and hanging out in military camps and discussing uh, um, realistic aspects of gameplay and so forth. So there is kind of this uh, symbiosis between game developers and the uh, military, for sure. So developers who are making games like Call of Duty and other first-person shooter games like that that are super realistic and based around the American military, like, go and talk to the military about that and get information from them or get storylines from them? Oh, most certainly. And ex-military people are the, I think, core advisors of these video games. It's very clear that um, uh, you know, some, like, operational details or even describing a group as reservists versus... Um, uh, uh, enlisted and, and uh, you know like all these structures are super accurately represented uh, and it, the point of contrast of course is how the terrorist cells or whatever are always like shrouded in kind of mystery or it's um, uh, uh, seen as nefarious and uh, the, the, there is the one scene where they um, I think it's Call of Duty 2 where they go to a poppy field in Afghanistan and this is kind of the main headquarters of the jihadists and I just remember like kind of being in this, and it's, it's, it seems almost like you're in outer space. Like they're really uh, going on a limb sometimes when they're trying to depict the other side as, as super nefarious. As like, uh, and I, I, for a conscientious uh, consumer of these video games, I, I can't help but wonder about like the teenager who's just like thinking this is what it's like over there. Uh, and these are exactly the demographic that would join the military and, and fight in these conflicts. Video games put you in the mind of the main character, and that can make them effective for exploring identity, and also as effective propaganda. In 2001, the U.S. military got started working on their own video game series. It's called America's Army. It's a first-person shooter series that's financed by the U.S. government and is available for free download to anyone who wants it. The game is a strategic piece of communication. It's designed to recruit people, and it prides itself on being super accurate. Here's a clip from YouTube of the game developers spending a day shooting guns to collect audio along with the army. It's all set to this bumping soundtrack. video game, you have to fight to, to save your life or to win the game, right? In a movie, you're a passive observer. Uh, your adrenaline might go up or down, uh, but it's not you pulling the trigger. That was scholar Sawad Al-Zaid. You can follow him on Twitter at Thoughtism. our show folks shout out to musician samus for letting us use her song power up in this episode samus uses classic video game soundtracks for both beats and inspiration it's super rad check out her albums that's samus with two m's 
You also heard music from SoundCloud user 8-Bit Songs. That was an 8-Bit remix of the Eurythmics' Sweet Dreams and a remix version of Zelda's Ocarina of Time song by SoundCloud user Chiptune Mikey. Big thanks to Lorenzo and the crew at Amaze Indie Game Festival in Berlin for connecting me with Sawad and talking with me about video game culture. You guys are so great. This show is produced for Bitch Media by Alex Ward at Sounds Like Pictures. Our jingle is by Mux and Owen Worker. Every episode of Popaganda is transcribed by Cheryl Green at Storyminders. We're proud to make Popaganda available to people who are deaf and hard of hearing. You can find full transcripts of every show at bitchmedia.org under the podcast tab. If you have thoughts or feelings or feedback on the show, please feel encouraged to send me an email, sarah, with an H, at bword.org. I read every email and I'm always excited to hear what you think and also I really take it to heart personally. You can help make propaganda possible. Become a podcast pollinator. Pollinators receive a special mug, a subscription to Bitch Magazine, and other great benefits. Become a pollinator today at bitchmedia.org slash pollinators. <laughs>